Hi, my name is Anita Johnson. Before we play our show, I wanted to ask you to make a donation to Making Contact. Become a part of our group of supporters who believe in the value of independent media. We can only do this work with your support. Go to our website, radioproject.org, and make a generous donation. Thank you so much. Now here's the show. Our system is in too many ways broken. The way we see the world shapes the way that we treat it. This is Making Contact. I'm Salima Hamrani, and on today's Making Contact, we'd like to introduce you to our friends at a podcast that we've begun to air called Self Evidence. Hey, uh, good to be here. I'm James Fu. I'm the managing producer at Self Evident. Uh, we're an independent studio and a home for Asian American audio stories that come from our day to day lives. I'm Sahil Nisha. I'm a reporter with AZ Media. Uh, we're an independent news organization focused on Asian American stories. Um, my team and I worked with James and his uh, team over at Self Evident to produce this story about the New York Taxi Workers Alliance and their hunger strike, which happened in the fall of 2021. Could you tell us a little bit more about this piece? Sure, I can start. So this story is part of the Solution Journalism Network's Advancing Democracy Initiative, and that's a grant project that helped us report on actions that different Asian American and Pacific Islander communities are taking to protect their families, uh, especially when it comes to problems that can't really be addressed just through voting. We all thought that it was really cool when the taxi workers went on hunger strike, and we were just blown away when it actually worked. Uh, they were able to secure major life-saving debt relief, and that was all after years of exploitation, after they'd been left out to dry by city officials. The same city officials, in fact, who pretty much control the market and decide who gets to be a legal taxi driver in New York. And, and you mentioned that this is part of the Solutions Journalism Network. What does that mean? What's the solutions piece versus other types of journalism that focus on political struggles? So I think we're all used to thinking of the news in like 2022 as it's just a giant doom scroll, uh, dumpster fire, like a milkshake duck, black hole. <laughs> um, but SJN is a nonprofit and they help journalists, including a lot of minority journalists, do pretty thorough reporting on real things that communities are doing that could create a positive impact. So the idea with Solution Story is not just to cover a problem, but also show the tangible solutions that are really being created all around us, like even if they don't always get the same level of news coverage. I'd also add that we recognize most taxi drivers in New York are immigrants, and so they don't have the right to vote. So they didn't have much political power because they can't vote. They aren't a traditional workforce where they can, you know, negotiate with one single employer, but they were still able to use union strategies and tactics to organize a plan and execute it successfully. This story is really personal because it comes from the perspective of Asian immigrants uh, who make up a lot of taxi drivers. Uh, but this story also follows them to really happy moments and explores the next steps that have to happen so they can all see justice. Thank you to you both, Sahil and James. Here's their piece on the taxi driver's hunger strike. So John Ray, I remember hearing about the hunger strike when it was happening, hmm. and it was quite shocking to me. Yeah, I think I'm more used to seeing like protest marches or, you know, a lot of the get out the vote stuff around elections. Right. And that's what drew me to this. I think it's really interesting because a lot of the people in the hunger strike were Asian immigrants. 
And some of them weren't citizens mm. and couldn't vote. Yeah. So I think there's something for us to learn here about how immigrant communities can fight for what they need without necessarily using the electoral system. Mm. So what started all this? Well, to start, if you want to legally drive a yellow taxi cab in New York, you're going to need a taxi medallion. Like a license? Basically, yeah. Taxi medallions are sold and regulated by the city government. So the city makes money from the medallions. Yeah, exactly. That's not the only reason medallions were originally introduced. But according to the New York Times, three consecutive mayors of New York, Giuliani, Bloomberg, and de Blasio, used medallion sales to balance their budgets. That's wild. I know. And like we've been saying, going all the way back to the 1990s, the majority of New York taxi and limo drivers have been immigrants. So in 2004, the Bloomberg administration launched this campaign to sell nearly a thousand new medallions at super high prices. And it was easy for the city to market medallions to immigrants as a once in a lifetime opportunity, because for so many years, that's how it felt to drivers. You know, my father never really talked about the industry much, but the one thing he did talk about was how proud he was of owning a piece of New York, which is a medallion. That's Augustine Tang. He's a New York taxi driver who inherited his father's medallion. I remember just looking at him when he talks about owning a yellow taxi and and owning a piece of New York was, but he was just so proud of talking about it. And he said, this is one of these things that we will, will have forever and that it will help us with our future. Augustine's dad passed away from a heart attack in 2015. And his dad never got Augustine involved with his loan for the taxi medallion. So Augustine had a choice. He could let the city take back the medallion, which his dad was so proud of owning, or he could inherit the medallion, which also meant inheriting the mountain of debt that came with it. I just decided, like, look, let me just, let me just try this. I understand that the loan of 530000 is a lot. Um, but I, I just felt like the need to try to keep it within the family. Wait, 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 wait. Augustine owed $530,000? Yeah, and that's actually just about the average amount of debt that a taxi driver would owe at this time. So he owed that money to the city of New York? Actually, no. That's where it gets kind of tricky. Yes, the city set these high prices, but the drivers would actually borrow the money from private lenders to pay those prices. Okay, so basically the city's saying, here's a way for you to build wealth for your family, when in reality, these medallions would become the opposite, like this huge financial burden on your family's future. Right. And city officials were talking about this being a crisis in the making almost as early as 2011. It wasn't something that the city didn't know that they were doing. Uh, there was an internal memo within the city, too, that, that talked about how the medallion was overinflated, but nobody said anything. The price of medallions peaked at around $1 million in 2014, and then just totally crashed without ever coming back to that level. And the debts for driver owners got even worse because of predatory loan conditions. A New York Times investigation showed that lenders were charging extra fees, garnishing cab fares, and bumping interest rates to 24% if the medallion wasn't paid off in the first three years. So paying off these loans by working harder? 
that was just completely impossible. The driver's debts started dragging down their family finances, making it harder to pay for rent, college tuition, or even just groceries. Quite many times I'm so desperate. Here's driver Mahamadou Aliyu speaking with Maximilian Alvarez of the Real News Network. Not really because of myself, but because of my kids. You know, it's like I'm on my way out of poverty. And the system is, is pulling me back to poverty. The dream of owning a piece of New York City turned into just owing so much in debt with no hope of ever paying it off. Augustine was seeing all this play out when he took over for his dad. And he got close with other drivers who had the exact same problems. I would meet them at taxi stands and I befriended one guy named Kenny Chow. And we would have coffee and we would talk about owning a medallion. You know, I started seeing him at the airport. Then I started seeing him in the middle of the street and we would say hi to each other. Um, at the time, he has $700,000 in loan. And he was actually optimistic, saying that oh, the city has to do something. There's no way we could allow this many Ubers operating in New York City. Just crazy amount of congestion. Over the course of the next year, Kenny's optimism really faded away. I bumped into him looking for medicine for his wife, who had cancer. Uh, you know, I, I, I pulled him aside. I was just like, hey, I want to make sure that uh, you are okay. He was telling me how he was working 16-hour days uh, and as, I don't know, in the middle of all this, driving his wife back and forth to the hospital and back home. I, I see him just really frail, and I saw the way he was and how, how, how scared he looked. He uh, ended up uh, taking his own life because of the heavy burden of the medallion mortgage, as well as he has uh, house payments. So ever since then, I, I personally felt like no one should ever try to go through that. But the pressure of all this debt didn't stop there. We had upward of nine total suicides and Ever since the suicide started happening, we we started speaking with their families, and we started speaking with um, you know elected officials. Uh, slowly, trying to tell them that this isn't you know this isn't fair uh, for for someone who for people who believed and trusted the city. And I I realized that it wasn't just my friend Kenny that was going through that. It was a lot of immigrant drivers that were that were people like my father who didn't really have a voice, you know, sacrificing uh, everything they had and still was not able to make ends meet. Think about that toll that that has on not just the driver itself, but the family. That was Beta Vita Sai. 
In the 90s, she worked at the Committee Against Anti-Asian Violence, where she helped South Asian taxi drivers bargain with the City Taxi and Limousine Commission. From there, she went on to found the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. It's a union that today has over 20,000 members. And what you just heard was Beravi speaking at a vigil that the Alliance organized for Augustine's close friend, Kenny Chow. Ever since I went to his Kenny Chow's vigil, I met my union, which is a Taxi Workers Alliance, New York Taxi Workers Alliance. And I saw what they do and how are they trying to get the message out there. And I, I told them, I was like, I, if anything you need, I'm going to try my best. And, you know, I'm going to try to help uh, make sure the world understands that this is a real crisis that we have here. In the summer of 2019, the Alliance called for the city to help these drivers, like Augustine, renegotiate their debt to lenders. And in 2020, they came up with a plan that would set a cap on how much debt any medallion owner could owe to their private lender and permanently forgive the rest. They figured that if the medallion loans were lowered to a reasonable amount, drivers would actually be able to pay them off by working their caps. But to make this solution attractive to lenders, they had to convince the city to step in and help out by becoming the backup option that lenders could trust. So my union uh, created this financial solution where if we could get the lenders the, uh, and the city to sit down with us, we can explain to them that there's a way to make this make us all whole. That's pretty much having the city backing up all the loans and that would create the lenders to lower the principle of the loans to a manageable state. At first, the mayor's office ignored the Alliance plan. So from 2019 and all the way through the toughest times of the COVID pandemic, the Alliance drivers started taking direct action to keep the demands in the public eye and to gain support. Augustine told us that they also joined other activist groups who were trying to help undocumented workers get COVID relief or fighting to secure rights or protections for gig delivery workers. The thing these groups all had in common was that our democratic system was excluding these workers, especially non-citizens, from having a say in policies that can be the difference between life and death in their communities. One of the groups that Augustine showed up to support was literally called the Fund Excluded Workers Coalition. We would drive our taxis to block other cars from, you know, somehow trying to go past them while they marched. We, we, we shut down bridges. Uh, you're talking about Brooklyn Bridge, 59th Street Bridge, Manhattan Bridge. We shut down bridges with them. On top of these direct action protests, the Alliance was reaching out to elected officials who could influence the mayor's office. And they even drove down to Washington, D.C. in their cabs. We would motorcade. Uh, we would speak with um, uh, certain elected officials that would come out and talk with us. We would have phone conversations because we wanted to show them that this is important. This is something that's been plaguing a lot of these drivers for such a long time and really, you know, stole their lives. We really try to make sure that people understood that this is a life and death situation for all of us. And all of this was to convince the mayor of New York City to accept the alliance plan, right? Yeah. So did it work? Actually, no. They went with their own plan. And how was the city plan different from the Alliance plan? Well, the city plan didn't have a debt cap at all. 
they just offered new loans from the city that the drivers could use to restructure their old loans. Okay, but like, they still owe the money, right? And if you're getting charged 24% of half a million bucks, I mean, I can see why the drivers were asking for debt forgiveness, not asking for another loan. Yeah. They came up with a plan that just wasn't going far enough. Drivers would still be foreclosed on. Uh, their homes would be repossessed uh, or put liens on. They would just, you know, be living in indentured servitude. In September of 2021, Alliance drivers started camping day and night outside of City Hall. We were on the 31st day camping out at City Hall 24-7, meaning that there was always at least one taxi and someone sleeping over to hold down the fort. We were not leaving. We knew how important it was to keep this up before the de Blasio administration leaves because we did not want to take a risk of it dragging out any farther. You know, 15 days turned into 30 days and then 30 days turned into 46 days over there protesting 24-7. We would have done it for 100 days. Occupying City Hall was part of the Alliance's bigger strategy for putting a spotlight on the mayor's next move. More and more public officials from the city, state, and federal levels started to announce their support for the Alliance and their debt relief plan. And we had all these right people backing us, and yet still nothing was being done. <laughs> nothing was being done. And it's so easy to get so frazzled and frustrated because you're like, what else needs to be done? There were times that we felt like it was never going to work. And then we always try to tell each other it has to. Okay, so John Ray, at this point, Augustine and his fellow drivers had been doing all these protests and outreach efforts to elected officials for like two years. Yeah. Part of me is like, what the heck? Why wasn't the city doing anything about this? I think honestly, it's just ego. A lot of it. They felt like their plan was best and it was the easiest way because all the pressure is still on the drivers. Uh, so why wouldn't they want that? But by refusing the alliance plan, de Blasio left Augustine and his fellow drivers just really no option but to do something radical. We're just jumping in to remind you that you're listening to Making Contact and a piece from our friends at the podcast Self-Evident called Hunger Strike, How Immigrant Taxi Drivers Took on City Hall. To get more information about the show and get behind-the-scenes information, visit us at radioproject.org. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we're making contact. On Twitter, we're making underscore contact. And on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. And now, back to the show. You might remember that voice from earlier. It's Beravi Desai, executive director of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. 
A hunger strike is an incredibly risky move, but it wasn't unprecedented. Just a few months earlier, the Fun Excluded Workers Coalition had staged their own hunger strike against the state government, and they won. Augustine took some inspiration from their example when he joined the Alliance Hunger Strike. We learned this from the FEW Coalition, which is the Fun Excluded Worker Coalition, where they also had a hunger strike for, a, I believe, it was 24 days. And I've actually met one of one of the ladies that did it for 24 days, and she, she explained to me how it's really all mental. And, you know, if it's for a cause that you really believe in, then you don't even feel hungry. And I, I told her that she lied because <laughs> I felt hungry every day. <laughs> we started doing it for five days and then five days turned to 10 days and, and it lasted up to 15 days. And, you know, after a while, it's true, you, you, you don't feel as hungry anymore. And the hardest part was going home, but I needed to get that good rest. Augustine and the other hunger strikers were living off water, coconut water, and sometimes Gatorade or vegetable broth. A team of volunteer doctors stayed at the camp to keep an eye on the driver's health. But what's amazing was that you come back to the camp and you just don't feel hungry. You feel like I could do this forever uh, if I need to, because you know these are the, the men and women that needs this the most. And they're just good family men and women that have that have just worked so hard for something. and and the city really turned their backs on them. Even people who weren't drivers joined the hunger strike, like street vendors, the children of taxi drivers, and elected officials, like State Assemblymember Zoran Mandani. And I will be going on hunger strike with the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. <laughs> On day six of the hunger strike, Mamdani was arrested by MIPD along with five other elected officials for disorderly conduct. And as the strike kept going, the lack of food started to take its toll. For me personally, every day I would wake up and, and think like, oh, is today gonna be the day I break my promise? It's hard because you wake up, you're just, you're exhausted, you have blurred vision. You just don't feel complete. And and yet when you go there to the camp and you see so many people, not only just go being out there, but also doing the hunger strike with you. I think we motivated each other to a point where we felt it was all or nothing. On November 3rd, 15 days into the hunger strike, Executive Director Desai sent the drivers a message from inside City Hall. She texted us get the avocados ready. And, you know, I was confused because I was just like, what are you talking about, avocados? And I texted her back. I was like, are we throwing them at City Hall? <laughs> I just did not understand it. I, I don't know. Also, I was on my 13th day of hunger strike. So I think, <laughs> I think that was okay. But she said, no, we could finally eat. When they came out, man, we all just celebrated and hugged, cried. We ate the best avocado I've ever had. 
we danced and we couldn't believe that we, we, we were able to get this done. this video and just all these Asian immigrant taxi drivers dancing in a circle in the middle of the street of Manhattan. It's just so joyful and triumphant. I know. It's so nice to see them smile after so much turmoil during this whole thing. And like, they finally got their lives back. I know the Lions drivers wanted the city to agree with their specific debt forgiveness plan. Is that what happened? Well, there was some compromise, but... Basically, yeah. So remember, the average debt for medallion owners was five hundred to six hundred thousand dollars. Right. After the hunger strike negotiations, each debt was capped at a hundred seventy thousand dollars max. That's huge. I know. They wiped out so much of this debt, and most importantly, the alliance got a city-back guarantee for the loans. So if a medallion owner defaults on what they owe then the lender can resell their medallion to help cover that debt. Then, the city will pay off whatever amount is still owed to the lender. So even in the worst case scenario, the driver can move on. And the lenders will still get paid. Exactly. But even though this agreement helped a lot of medallion owners, including Augustine, there were still lenders who didn't want to sign the agreement, which meant there were still drivers who needed help. We're so happy, but yet we're, we're still not done yet. Uh, we're not going to leave anybody behind because we understand that everybody needs to be on board on this, and they will be. So now, the Alliance is negotiating with a bunch of other lenders to get them on board with the same approach. In March of 2022, they drove their cabs out to Minnesota to protest outside of the lender's headquarters, putting pressure on the lender to sign up for debt forgiveness. And with the city still backing up their plan, they won, again. Driver power! Driver power! You better believe it! You better believe it! Yeah, we got a victory! Yes! Yes! I'm so inspired by this. And I'm really glad that nobody had to go on hunger strike again. Yeah. Especially because, if you think about it, a hunger strike isn't really something that you would typically whip out to change someone's mind. True. And in this case, the hunger strike was pointed at the New York City government to get them involved in helping drivers because they're supposed to be accountable to the people, right? But even then, Augustine reminded me that the hunger strike had to happen because there wasn't really any other way for them to get these results in our democratic system. We started speaking with um, you know, elected officials slowly trying to tell them that this isn't fair for people who believed and trusted the city. And the hardest part was, you know, throughout this journey, a lot of officials just kind of wrote us off. So this was really one of my favorite things about this victory. You know, it shows that your political power doesn't really depend on your vote. It depends on your actions. John Ray, are you telling people to stop voting? No, still, you know, that's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying that that's not all there is to it. Got it. Like, these medallion owners, they didn't just vote their way out of their debt, you know. Many of them literally couldn't. So, they found other ways to participate in the political process. They tried direct action, coalition building. They started to really get organized. 
And they started to strengthen those friendships that they had with generations of drivers that existed already in their community. That's fair. And I think there's a lot of people who put a lot of emphasis on elections. Mm. But what I'm learning from this hunger strike is that it was the final act of a two-year marathon by drivers, putting their plan together, building up their squad, and getting the right elected officials on board. Exactly. So when it was time to strike, everyone was united around the same strategy, and they were ready to put the word out. Yeah, and it's that whole process of collaboration that I think really made this hunger strike so effective. It showed how taking action in our democracy can go way beyond voting. One thing that I will always remember, how, how powerful it felt being with other organizations. We're all just working people just trying to get their fair share. That was Augustine Tang, and that does it for today's show. Again, thank you to both AZI Media and the podcast Self-Evident for that amazing story. You can find out more information about both projects on our website at radioproject.org. And we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a comment or visit us on our social media. On Facebook, we're making contact. On Twitter, we're making underscore contact. And on Instagram, we're making contact radio project. I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.